0: Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, editor of Libertarianism.org, and a research fellow here at the Cato
1: Institute. And I'm Trevor Burrus, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Our guest today is Alex Epstein, president and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of the new book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Alex, you describe your book as a secret history of fossil fuels. What do you mean by that? Well, it's
2: actually chapter one is the secret history of, of fossil fuels, and um, I want to begin the book by questioning the idea that all of the leading experts, or at least the people media present to us as the leading experts, are actually in that position because they have demonstrated superior ability and in particular a superior ability to make accurate predictions about the future because you hear about 97 percent of climate scientists agree with X and we can talk about what they agree with and whether that's a valid kind of summary. But people like Paul Ehrlich and Bill McKibben and James Hansen, there's the assumption that, well, if they're at the top of the pyramid, at least as reported by media, they must be accurate and and there's this implication that maybe we should be intimidated by them and, and defer to them. I don't think you should ever do that but it's particularly important to ask, hey, what is their track record? What's the track record more broadly of this idea that fossil fuel use is going to lead us to an unlivable planet? And this usually has three components, that it will lead to catastrophic resource depletion, that it will lead to catastrophic pollution and that of course it will lead to – of course to them. It will lead to catastrophic uh, climate change and what's interesting and what the secret history of fossil fuel is, is that these predictions pretty much in the exact same form have been made for the last 30 to 40 years by many of the same people and have not only been a little bit wrong but have been exactly opposite uh, to the truth. and. You know, in the following sense, if you look at our resource situation, if you look at our pollution situation, if you look at the actual livability of our climate, how many people die from storms and heat waves and droughts and floods today versus the past, every single one of those has gotten way, way better and it can be very strongly connected to the use of machines powered by cheap, plentiful, reliable energy from fossil fuels. So that indicates something is very wrong with the way we think and I found that an effective way to open to at least challenge the framework that the people who are telling us everything today and posing as experts actually deserve the deference that they get.
1: Trevor Burrus, like I like your book because the way it, – well, its focus is different. It's not on – it's not focused on you know, why climate change is a myth or things like this. It's focused on the other side, which you almost never hear. There, mm-hmm. there are big things you get from fossil fuels that you have to balance this again, against and all we do is talk about – we seem to think that there are no costs to – all the proposals that are out there for limiting fossil fuel use.
2: Yeah, and I think ultimately what it is is it's it's trying to look at the issue of fossil fuels in context, which I I don't think is very well done in most discussions on on either side. So, I analogize it to thinking about taking a prescription drug. So, you take a prescription drug, it has certain effects, you know, it has an effectiveness as the FDA would call it for all the FDA's problems and then it has certain risks and side effects and to decide whether to take it, you have to look at all of those. Imagine if you just looked at the side effects but you didn't look at the efficacy of it. You would make very, very bad decisions or if you only looked at the efficacy but you didn't look at the side effects. So you you need to look at both and you need to look at them with precision and you need to have a clear goal which in the context of a a drug is your health and I think in the context of fossil fuels or anything else should be – human well-being. and One thing I, I argue in the book is that our discussion is very much not driven by a focus on the big picture and it's also not oriented toward human well-being. And That's, that's a controversial claim but I think if, if we examine in more depth, we see that a lot of the thought leaders on the environmental side are not optimizing for human well-being. They're optimizing for minimizing human impact on the planet and I argue that that is not a pro-human goal at all.
0: Well there are certainly some people who think that the proper approach to dealing with the environment is that we all should kind of live as the Amish do or uh-huh. you know radically reduce all of our usage of anything energy related. A lot of people are arguing for simply alternatives. So they're saying things like you know yes we we need the energy and it's good that we have the energy and it's good that we have these machines powered by the energy but there are these non-fossil fuel alternatives like solar and wind and hydroelectric and whatever else that would give us that without the environmental costs of fossil fuels.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, so you know it's important, the, the aspect that I mentioned before in terms of looking at risks and benefits with precision. I think a lot of the environmental cost arguments are not, not doing that whatsoever. Um, they're also not looking at many of the environmental benefits of energy including uh, – fossil fuels. Um, But I think that the main thing there is that what does it mean to say that I'm, I'm proposing alternatives? I mean it's like saying I'm proposing alternative phones to the iPhone, Okay, Are you building one or are you making one up? Or are you saying you should have the freedom to build one? And what we should be doing I think as citizens, assuming we're not actually building them, is pretty much shut up about which alternatives are best and simply say we want a a society where people are free to build uh, different things and not not sort of prejudice ourselves and say, oh, it needs to come from the sun or it needs to come from the wind or we'll only use something if we think we can use it for the next billion years, which I think is a ridiculous kind of uh, concept that we don't, we don't say that about a phone. I only want the phone if we can – all the materials will last for the next billion years. You say I want the best phone. Same thing with energy. You should say that about – um, energy. So the people who say, oh, I'm in favor of these alternatives, what they're usually in favor of is, is wildly impractical alternatives and alternative, – if you use the term alternative energy, it's really an alternative to what actually works on, on the market. It's usually uneconomic. Uh, energy and solar and wind, I discuss a lot in chapter two of the book looking at the different uh, energy technologies and what state they're in. I mean solar and wind have had the same problems forever which is just that they're very dilute. Uh, so you have to spend a lot of resources concentrating them and even more importantly, they're intermittent. So you have to spend a lot of resources trying to store them so you can deliver them uh, reliably and that's why there's not one freestanding solar plant or wind plant. Uh, in the world and why even in a place like Germany they're providing 6% of the energy total and none of it reliably
1: what do you mean by freestanding in that sense that doesn't rely on fossil fuels in the, in the yeah document? like
2: like we think of a power plant you know as this independent thing that you you know you can plug you can plug like a hospital into and that you know that could really run a grid and so there's no there's no solar grid. There's no wind grid. There's no so on a on a on a large level, leaving aside something like using solar for a small heating system or to run a small battery or to heat a pool or something like that, where you can deal with the intermittency or you're willing to pay more in the case of solar and the battery if, if you want to live a low energy off grid lifestyle. Uh, there's no grid run by solar. So it 's really accurate to say there 's actually no such thing as solar electricity there 's solar coal there 's solar hydro there 's solar oil insofar as oil is used for electricity, which isn 't that much there 's solar gas uh, same thing with same thing with wind. And I think it's just really remarkable and dishonest the extent to which the intermittency problem is ignored. And in much of our energy discussion, you, for instance, the rating of, in megawatts or in kilowatts of the facilities, the idea that you will rate like a nuclear power plant and a wind farm, uh, except with a nuclear power plant, you rate it, like, let's say it's a gigawatt. That means it can actually produce a gigawatt. And the wind farm, if it was a gigawatt, which is a ton for a wind farm, uh, that means that if the wind is blowing perfectly, which is almost never happening, it's a gigawatt. one. Trevor
1: Burrus And what do the numbers look like uh, in terms of how much of our energy are, is supplied by solar versus fossil fuels versus wind on an on a international level or a national level?
2: You know you're looking at uh, – numbers differ but you're looking around 2 percent but it's an expensive 2 percent. So I don't think – let's put it this way. If all the solar panels and windmills disappeared from the face of the earth tomorrow, you could very much argue it would be an economic benefit and it certainly would not be hard to replace. If you took away the new – you know, the hydroelectric dams or the nuclear power plants and certainly the fossil fuels, it would be a huge, huge loss. And I think that really shows that, that these core technologies, hydro, nuclear, and particularly fossil fuels, they're doing the real work and the others are, as Petter Beckman once once called them, rich men's toys
1: and what do you, what would you say to the argument if someone is listening to this uh, which probably is not the case but maybe a a, a very big devotee of these of these uh, technologies wait, that that by the way how weird
2: is that like you're a devotee of solar yeah, it is why kind do of strange, you care I, yeah. uh, I mean if you work in the industry that you're a devotee in the sense of you're you're attempting to solve a problem but even there if i was working solar i'd admit, look we're pretty much junk compared to the the things that are actually leading the way so i just the reason I interjected there is because the, the devoteeism, if that's the word for it, that is ideological that come, and it's ultimately religious. It comes from the idea that the ideal is to live in harmony with nature and that somehow using the sun and the wind is a more natural way of being. So if you look at Apple's website and they have this complete lie which I've written about on medium.com about how all their servers are powered you know, just by quote-unquote renewables. Um, but they say you know, when you download something from the iTunes store, the energy comes from nature and you can just see it's this, this naturism or nature worship. Of course they ignore that you have to you know, mine an unbelievable amount to get the raw materials for these resource-intensive processes to quote get your energy from nature but nevertheless that's the ideal and so we have at work, again, they're not optimizing for maximizing human well-being. They're trying to minimize human impact and that's – so that's their, quote, excitement that we might have a form of energy that doesn't actually do very much to the earth.
1: But isn't there something to be said for that? I mean, is, it, is, if you would rather build something with less impact versus building something with more impact, if those were the only two variables … Trevor Burrus on what? Trevor Yes. Yeah, so let's say it will we'll choose something. Uh, Impact on air quality, and let's say everything else is equal, you would rather. So we're not. We're just going to hold everything constant. It'd be better to build something with less impact on air quality than more.
2: Right, right? but then on the standard of maximizing human well-being, then it would maximize human well-being because you'd have all aspects constant, and then one is optimized. So that's an easy thing. Yeah, exactly. But it's interesting. But that's I think I mean, whether
1: people are thinking. I think that they think sun is well is because, a replacement because
2: like this that. is a point that came up. Uh, this morning in the the Cato Talk on the Hill, which I believe will be available um, online when people listen to this podcast, uh, one of the key points that really struck me early on and got me interested in energy was the idea that all forms of energy are not created equal. And really, energy is, shouldn't be thought of as a material. It's not like the sun or the wind or coal or oil. Energy is a process. It's taking a whole bunch of elements and combining to them together and seeing, can I get out of this? Can I use few enough resources here, everything combined, so that the output is cheap? reliable and most difficult perhaps scalable. And When I studied the history of oil, it was fascinating that you had at least six major competitors to oil before oil became dominant but none of them could do the job of lighting up the countryside. Oil was the first cheap, reliable, scalable solution and the fossil fuel industry is still the leader today because they keep developing more and more technology and there's so much fossil fuel uh, matter in in the earth. uh solar and wind have incredibly inefficient uh processes. So part of it is this this dogma or this, this way of thinking, let's oh, would we like the sun to power it, or would we like coal to power it? But that's not the question, is would we like the sun plus all these other mine materials with all that expense, or would we like coal? And I'd say I like coal with those other with the process. This sounds then like the problems with these
0: alternatives are often the tech just doesn't – isn't there to make them work as well as fossil fuels, um, which means that presumably it's possible that there would be non-fossil fuel alternatives that if we simply had enough technological growth, we could get to and they'd work. And there's, there's an argument that you hear a lot that part of the reason that, say, solar doesn't is, – is inefficient, doesn't work very well um, wind. or wind doesn't work Hydra. very well is because the – Fossil fuel industry, which has obviously an incentive to maintain its position mm-hmm. in the industry, um, just because of the financial rewards that come with it, works against that. It, it, you know, it funds studies that show the alternatives don't work,
1: or it, it has congressmen in their pockets, and it, right. it, it's basically keeping it down. Is there? Is there an? Am, I assume so. There's a number
2: before. of varieties. I think the most popular one. Is not as much sort of the, you know, they're withholding patents and this kind of thing, but rather the subsidies argument that you hear. You know, it's if you actually look at all what they'll call the externalities, you know, these, these costs that are, you know, we're destroying the planet, but it's not accounted for in the price that you pay, whereas clean. So if you added them all up, it turns out solar and wind would be cheaper. The first thing to say about that is if that were true, that would be really bad. Because if energy, if the best priced energy was actually solar we'd have to be really really poor because what they're saying is not that solar can actually be super cheap they're just saying oil should be super expensive and inefficient like solar so that that's a bad sign and if you so just I don't think
1: we should lament and say this is Yeah this is no sad. they never lament yeah.
2: which is very revealing they don't lament the loss of you know by far your uh, cheapest, most reliable, most scalable source of energy. They're sort of gleeful at it, which uh, is another indication that they're not trying to maximize human well-being. They're trying to minimize impact. And ultimately, my belief is, and I explain why toward the end of the book. Really, the objection toward energy is not to put it in software terms. Is not the bugs. It's not the you know pollution or you know the difficulty of finding new resources. It's actually the feature. Energy is a means. Of impacting nature for human benefit. So, if you believe that our goal should be to minimize impact to be green, how could you be in favor of having lots and lots and lots of energy? And I, I give the example in the late '80s when people thought that nuclear fusion might be practical, and this this was the holy grail in terms of cheap, reliable, scalable energy on uh, you know that was cleaner than anything imaginable. And a lot of the thought leaders like Emery Lovins and Paul Ehrlich and uh, Jeremy uh, Rifkin, I think. You know, They said this would be the worst thing and uh, Ehrlich called it – he said it would be like giving an idiot child a machine gun for us to have so much cheap, clean, uh, reliable energy. And The idea is he thinks of our human activity powered by energy as like a machine gun, yeah. right? He, he thinks because nature – preserving nature from us is the goal. He doesn't want to improve the planet for human beings. He wants to save it uh, from
1: human beings. Trevor Burrus And that seems like a very common thing you hear just the feature another feature of oil is growth, uh consumption, what was called consumption usually. Usually people who use that word is they're using it pejoratively, but mm-hmm. like the, oh do you think we should just be consuming? Is that where we're gonna go? Just consuming right. and consuming until the earth is dried up and all these things. And and Paul Ehrlich says one of the people who says yes, this is something we should avoid. Human flourishing is something that is bad. He's almost saying, think, mm-hmm. in in a way, and that consumption is bad, uh, which seems like a religious type of view almost, as you mentioned.
2: Well, I've I started calling the underlying view here, which which is something that unites both the uh, climate catastrophism and pollution catastrophism and resource catastrophism. Uh, I call it the perfect planet premise. So this is this is the idea that nature gave us a perfect planet. And it gave us the resources that we need, and it gave us the friendly environment we need. And pretty much every time we take an action, every time we make a footprint, we're jeopardizing, you know, the delicate balance of that perfect planet. Now, this would have been a laughable, if not tragic, idea for anyone who lived, say, 300 years ago, when they lived in the undisturbed planet and lived till 30, and you know, uh, had kids die at childbirth, and and had a horrific climate in the sense of they couldn't cope with it. So that you know, they a drought comes, and your some of your population gets wiped out. Um, you know, climate is not perfect. Nothing about nature is perfect by the standard of human well-being. Climate is naturally variable. It's always changing. It's volatile. can change violently and it's vicious. It can do all sorts of things to deprive us of the temperatures that we need or the water that we need and you know, can certainly attack us with all sorts of, uh, of storms. So to get that to then the resource point, the resources, the perfect planet gives us all the resources that we need unless we're greedy, unless we consume because once we consume those resources, they will be gone. But then I ask the question, who has more resources, us or the caveman? We've been consuming so many resources, right? We've been gobbling them up. It sure looks like we have a lot more resources than he does. And this gets to the point which you know, Ayn Rand makes well, George Reisman makes well, Julian Simon makes well that – I'll put it in my own words. Resources are created. The earth, there's a difference between raw materials and resources. The earth is just one big ball of raw materials and energy, and it's enormous potential. But to make it usable resources requires human ingenuity. And so the ultimate resource, as Simon would put it, uh, is the mind, and so the thing we have to worry about is not running out of oil it 's running out of freedom to use our mind to create new resources, whether it 's more oil resources in the case of something like the shale revolution or new nuclear resources, you know which I think will ultimately be the most promising thing down the road should the call it the the
0: good of the planet or for lack of a better term, so the quality of the environment pristine you know um, undisturbed landscapes or animal species whatever should that enter into our moral calculus at all whose should
1: environment humans beavers yeah
0: so what? animals, animals like non animal so says. like so every non-human I'm saying should we should those things if we're if we're choosing trade-offs so fossil mm-hmm. fuels have these trade-offs because they produce some externalities other means of energy have other trade-offs and other sorts of externalities. Should we care at all? Is there ever a point where we would say like it's not right to say Destroy strip this mine river, this entire yeah. area or wipe out this species? Should should we yeah, have a at human all? So
2: there's two things. One is partially the legal framework by which which you deal with these things. Um, so that's all – just really quickly on that. I don't like – I think externality thinking in economics applied to politics is almost completely invalid and, and very harmful to thinking about it in part. Um, it's based on the premise in part that prices are supposed to – are perfect measures of value which directly contradicts the fundamental of modern economics which is the marginal uh, theory of prices. So if you think about like – do you pay – when you pay $3 a gallon for an oil product, are you getting $3 of value out of it? Well, only one person really is, the marginal buyer, right? He was buying for $3. That's – let's say he buys the oil in the form of a Barbie doll and pays $3 and he wouldn't – it wouldn't even be worth $3.01. But of course on the rest of the scale, all of the rest of us were willing to pay more than $3. That's how the price system works and let's say it was the prescription drug that saved my life. I might be willing to pay $100,000 for the gallon that, that produced that or you know, you're taking your wife uh, to the hospital. So the this is called the consumer surplus in economics. Um, but it's very important because if you're trying to measure the value of different things and you're, you're talking about, oh, there are these hidden costs. But there's – by the nature of how prices work, there are always hidden benefits. The thing is always worth more than you pay for it and that dynamic is dramatically different depending on the product. So the more fundamental the product to human life like energy, the more dramatic the consumer surplus. So if you start talking about – oh, the hidden – if anyone starts talking about, oh, the hidden costs without the hidden benefits, they are thinking about it horribly. So that's – I think that's an Ill, why it's an illogical way of calculating sort of general economic good. But then legally, I think it's also a problem. I mean if you murder me, do we call that an externality? I mean you could put a – price. why would you put a price on it? It's a rights violation. If I start a hog farm next to someone's house and ruin his life, is that – I mean maybe you can put a tort on it and put a cost on it. We think of it as a rights violation. So I think in general pollution, we should put into a rights violation framework and we should have thresholds for things like emissions that are based on the current technology. So for instance, in the 1800s, you'd have a much um, like higher level of air pollution or air contamination that you'd accept because you – Coal was essential and you didn't have much of a means of limiting it whereas today, we should never accept those kinds of standards because we don't have to. We have the technology. So I talk about this a bit in chapter seven of the book but I just wanted to say that about externalities and because my own philosophical framework is, is an individualistic one. It's not that, oh, I think you can use – you too can use fossil fuels and I don't think it's OK for you guys to use fossil fuels and benefit your life and extend it by 40 years in exchange for me dying. Like that's that's not the point at all. And this also helps – so the property rights individualistic framework also helps clarify the rest of nature. So I don't believe that the rest of nature has intrinsic value. Any given part of it, but it has specific value to specific human beings. So we just think about a garden or something like that. There's a, in your house when you have a house or a piece of property, you don't just randomly build stuff on it to say, "Oh, I impacted things." Right? This is not how we think. You're maximizing its value. You're maximizing your well-being, which means that maybe the natural beauty of it is a big value. You know, we pay a lot of money for these kinds of things, and that's uh, that's terrific. Like, you know, I love going to the beach in Orange County. And unfortunately I don't any own any beachfront property in, in part because all these climate catastrophists are hypocrites and won't sell it to me at a discount, which they should if the sea levels were actually going to rise dramatically. Uh, but nevertheless, I love going to the beach. And if someone said, hey, let's just let's just build a I don't know, uh, I mean I don't know what they would try to build on the beach, but you know let's make it inaccessible to you so you can't enjoy the ocean, I'd have a big problem with that. Now I think it should be privately owned. I think you'd solve it that way. But there's a value, but it's always a value to human beings. There's no such a being as the planet. The planet is just a rock that has a bunch of species, and you have to decide whose species perspective are you going to look at environment from. And so human versus non-human is a big distinction. And so I care about the human environment from a value perspective on, you know, and I don't care about the mosquito environment, although there might be some circumstance I wanted to uh,
1: preserve the mosquito and surely there are circumstances in which I want to exterminate it. Trevor Burrus, And even if you wanted to look at it, it's an interesting point because you could say, OK, let's well, bears, like just choose anything. Let's maximize value to bears in order to keep bears alive. You'd have to impact the environment in some way, right? They'd have to eat. They'd have to impact it in some way. So they're going to have some impact on anything to keep anything alive. It's going to have some sort of impact. Trevor Burrus
0: Right. But let me ask this – I think – let me try to ask the question a different way because I think it gets to the motivation for a lot of people who are opposed to the use of fossil fuels Mm -hmm. or at least would like to invest more in trying to discover – alternatives. Of
2: their money or mine.
0: <laughs> Either way. Either way. <laughs> Either way. because um, those so, are not equal. I mean. Yeah, I agree. No, but but. Um, or or at least think that we ought to. So they would implore you to invest some of your money in me yes. and whatever. But the so imagine a situation where you have a you've bought a chunk of land mm-hmm. and there are there's a some sort of animal species on that chunk of land, and there's some sort of like you know it's maybe it's a piece of like the Grand Canyon, so it's some piece of kind of like uniquely beautiful nature is on that land, mm-hmm. um, and you would take pleasure in killing every member of that animal species that's on your land. You would just gain some sort of hedonistic joy in the action of it. Well, or, but it's
2: different if it's if it's for sport or for yes. for food well, yeah, or could, for, we, but, for
0: nihilism. Hmm. Sure, but but the point is. If or you decide you want to this chunk of the Grand Canyon, you want to somehow fill demolish it, it, fill it in, something like that. okay, so you're not you're not violating anyone's rights. It's Correct. your property, you know, you're not limiting anyone else's access to it because it was already yours, it wasn't theirs. but would there be any grounds for morally judging that as a blameworthy or wrong
2: act? Oh, yeah, well, I mean there's an Im- Property rights and morality are certainly very related, and you know that's a whole interesting issue of moral and political philosophy. But I mean, think about it more broadly. There are many moral judgments you can make. At least I think you can make about how a person uses his property. Um, I mean, just. Or, you know, other things associated. For example, you watch somebody how they treat their kids and there are lines in terms of, you know, if they openly beat their kids, then, you know, you can report them uh, to the police. But if, what if it's just, you know, they're yelling at them or they're saying things that you think are psychologically harmful or even you're sending them to a school that you think will brainwash them. I mean, these things are incredibly tragic that we do to human beings, never, you know, let alone animals or flower beds or whatever. And in particular, any kind of act of nihilism, which is just destruction for the sake of of destruction, um, which you see people who abuse animals. It's a very disturbing uh, kind of thing or people – I mean what would be their motivation if if it was just some really beautiful part of Grand Canyon? Now fortunately, if it's really beautiful, it would be priced very high. So the person's nihilism, he would have to pay a lot of money to enforce it. It would be pretty rare. But just to take something – that either you acknowledge it is beautiful or other people do and just destroy it for its own sake, that's fortunately uh, pretty rare. I think the motivation I'm worried about is the people who – you know, to go back to your bear point, the people who it's not really that they care about any particular species or all – you can't care about all species but that the only criterion of moral action is that your impact not benefit a human being. So as long as it's for the sake of any other species, as long as it's the, you know, the rainforest or the polar bear, or whatever, nobody can judge you. But if you say, no, I want to prioritize a human being, it's you're not being green. And you're not being green, but that means that being green is evil if if that's what it means, if it means a non-impact and it's this it's it's a morality, you know, Ayn Rand, I think, would call it like sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. It's a nihilism about human beings. So this in the same way that you would be nihilistic in just you know you know just maiming a dog or something like that, it's you're just saying all I care about is that human beings sacrifice for what? I don't care. It could be a polar bear, it could be a mosquito, it could be the tundra, it could be Anwar, like any kind of wasteland or you know from from ugly to beautiful. As long as a human being is sacrificing and not making another footprint on Earth, I'm happy, and that's. That I call human racism you you like every race on the planet allegedly
1: except for the human race so, so that 's a good segue back into uh, into the one big part of your book being the how much fossil fuel use has benefited humanity yes, and so how much has it benefited humanity
2: well I think this goes this goes to an earlier point that was raised about just um you know the, the benefits of fossil fuels are, are overwhelmingly the benefits of of energy. So the core benefit of fossil fuels is that it produces cheap, plentiful, reliable energy on a scale, you know, that n- no other form of energy has been able uh, to do, and that's part of why. We don't want to be partisan about it, like you know. I say I love fossil fuels. You just like
1: energy, but yes. but it's
2: really yeah. I love energy, but I respect how difficult it is to produce it on that scale, and so I respect what the fossil fuel industry does. You know, when it's doing that, if it does something bad, then of course I don't respect uh, that. But if we look at then what has been the impact of being this, the one industry that can produce this kind of energy on this scale, it's really the question of what is the value of energy, and, and a big theme of the book is that this is not appreciate it at all. And one of my motivations for, for writing it and for getting into the field is that I didn't appreciate energy at all before I started studying uh, the history of it. And um, so the way I like to think of it is this. you know, just like our body needs calories to function and to do work, So, our machines need calories to function to do work. So, energy is really machine calories. Technically, it's the capacity to do work, but it's really the capacity of our machines to do work. Now, we as human beings are very, very weak in terms of the amount of physical work we can do uh, to improve our lives. And this is one of the core explanations as to why human beings historically did not live at a level that we would consider acceptable. You know, life expectancy of 30. A huge infant mortality weight, rates inability to cope with climate all of these you know starvation shortages all you know all kinds of afflictions um, because the average human being you know we use about as much energy as a 100 watt light bulb which is just not you know not You mean our bodies, yeah, you know, our bodies yeah you know, our bodies in terms of you know because ultimately everything goes back to some sort of physical work um and that 's simply not enough to really sustain our population in the way that we would we would like to, so what we do is we have this ingenious invention of hey let 's create these things called machines, but instead of us, you know we can only take in so many calories and use them, you know then we just you know sort of gain weight like has been happening on this you know radio tour of mine because I'm not I'm not exercising as much and then I'm uh, you know taking in calories but I'm not becoming like incredibly powerful from the lobster grilled cheese <laughs> sandwich I just had but what we can do the nice thing about machines is they to have no limit at least in the aggregate of how many calories they can use so the more machine calories we can produce the more machines we can produce along with them the more work that can be done and I I use the stat in the book it's around the average American uses about uh, you know, ninety-six human equivalents versus worth of machines. So it's like I have ninety-six human beings doing work for me just based on my energy expenditures and other expenditures, which is which is just Amazing and you just look at wherever in life we use machines, whether it's to manufacture pharmaceuticals or to do modern farming or to, for a family to go to a wedding uh, or even for me to just come in Cato and for the temperature to be comfortable and to have all this amazing equipment, how to get manufactured. Every single thing is enhanced by machines and every machine is running on uh, machine food. And as soon as that dries up, as soon as it becomes unaffordable or scarce – all this stuff doesn't doesn't work it's like a it's like a blackout and so in, in a real way the environmentalist movement by opposing fossil fuels is a blackout movement
0: what about the argument that gets raised by the environmentalist movement that that's all great and it's wonderful that we have these machines that they're being powered but we're running out of the stuff that we're, we you know the peak oil argument or whatever and so if we aren't putting our energy into these other alternatives no matter how inefficient they might be right now uh-huh.
2: we're going to hit a
0: wall uh
2: huh well you know, first of all, whenever, whenever anyone begins a sentence like that, like "Oh, it's great and all," and about the one innovation that doubled the human life expectancy, <laughs> so I'm very suspicious of the kind of mode. And it yeah. shows that in terms of the balance of things, uh, the benefits to human beings don't seem to carry much emotional resonance. And then they'll start weeping over a polar bear that, for Burrus, Jr.: It's a really
1: good point. It's like yeah, it's like, oh, that's great at all. You've doubled human life expectancy. That you've that you've fed billions of people. You've halved infant mortality. That we have lights. That we have computers. That we can go on internet. But what about running out of the stuff? <laughs> yeah,
0: you're right. Well, I think, I think that's partly though because the—I mean—the environmentalist movement is largely so it's in the fairly rich West, mm-hmm. right? And so they're not when they're thinking about these machines and the uses of energy. They, my guess is that what they have in mind is what we'll call like the more frivolous uses, like you're powering up your TV or right. you're running, you know, these these things that we could all live without. They're not—they're not thinking about the the hospitals and the life-saving machines and the stuff that allows us to farm much more efficiently and whatever else. Trevor Burrus Yeah. And
2: and those run together though because it's kind of like if somebody says, hey, Alex, you know what? I think you wasted 40 percent of your money last year. So I'm going to take away that (laughs) money next year and it will just be fine. I would say, "Okay, well, you're welcome to give me some advice and give me your judgment, but I would like that money still and now I can use it better. Because money is a fundamental form of opportunity, and energy is also a fundamental form of opportunity. So I want the, I want more opportunity to use machines to improve my life. So I agree that those the kind of luxuries are the stand-in, but I think that's a lot of corruption by the intellectuals, and they, they definitely don't get or don't want to get or don't care about the core value um, to human life. So which question? Were so we what on? about running out? Yes. Yeah, so, so running out. Yeah. The other thing that's just. It, it's always interesting how questions are phrased and how how questions intersect or integrate or or disintegrate or contradict one another because with this one, think about it. One set of whole worries is we have way too much of this stuff, so we're going to destroy environment with pollution and with catastrophic climate change. And on the other hand, we don't have enough. So fossil fuels are bad because there's too many of them and fossil fuels are bad because there's too few of them. So this kind of implies that you could argue there's some consistency there, but – It implies that there's some uh, sort of more meta-level aversion to uh, what's going on. And with the – so with the alternatives issue, it's – in a sense, it's almost too dumb an argument to even know where to begin because in, in just an economic sense, what happens when we start running low on anything it 's not like fossil fuels are, are unique in this way you know with different things they can become more expensive to produce um, or you know whatever it becomes more scarce you know just like in in speaking let's say this book goes really, really well, and i'm you know people want Alex Epstein to speak and you know the bureau um, or what, Lee Bureau, like who represents me, you no, know, they start jacking up the price, and then for some people they can't afford it anymore. And okay, what do they do? Well they go, go find they hear you guys on the podcast and they say, well, actually I think you're just as good or maybe even better. So we'll start jacking up your rate, and then you get to like what happens it's called it's called substitution, right? When you when when um, You know, Demand rises relative to supply. The price goes up and you have substitution. This is how any kind of thing works and that's the point at which it's rational and you have futures markets which which anticipate these dynamics. But basically, you should always use the best thing and when it's no longer the best thing and as futures markets indicate that it's not the best thing, you start using other things. But the real – you notice how eager they are to believe, oh, we're going to run out of it. Because it's really the perfect planet premise. They just think, oh, we can't have that many resources or we can't have that much ability to get more of it. And they're very sort of skeptic. They're very unmoved by the fact that these predictions have been coming wrong for a 100, really 200 years now. Um, so that's sort of the basic supply and demand thing, which I think – you know that—that's sort of the core answer in terms of the policy is what I call progressive energy. So we just keep using the best form, and that will continue to evolve just like cell phones do. And fossil fuels are likely going to be that for the vast majority of people for you know many decades to come. And we certainly have the supplies to do that. We just need
1: uh, need the freedom. In the book, you write about uh, how you think that the fears of global warming are somewhat exaggerated, but, but … Somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're exaggerated by some – many people. But it seems like even if they aren't – let's just say – we were just going to say, I will take everything that you have and say, you're, you're right. I won't even argue against your global warming premise and there's still a moral case for fossil fuels. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it seems interesting to me. I always say that there are what, about three billion people on this planet who are have – don't have enough energy at all and that – and energy equals wealth as you point out essentially. And if we're caring about people who don't yet exist and trying to make energy more expensive for three billion people who really mm-hmm. need to live a, a, a satisfying life or would like to, then we're doing something very immoral to them in the name of unknown and, and distant possibly catastrophes and so it's, it, it's still – even if they're correct, it's, there's still a fundamental moral case for fossil fuels.
2: Well, I take a little bit of issue with that in the sense of I don't like statements such as even if they're correct because a lot of – a lot of – the methodology here is all about precision and a lot of nuance. So it's like, – oh, are you correct about global warming? But what do you mean? Do you well, mean –
1: Trevor The catastrophic theory is But even,
2: even what that means, right? Because we have a – we're talking about a guaranteed energy catastrophe if we start restricting it and I think there is already an energy catastrophe for three billion people. So you need to be specific and what I, what I find uh, from the data and from my own just thinking about it is that – when we talk about you know, even a climate catastrophe, it's very difficult to even make one up and the reason is because uh, technology is such a powerful force for mitigating climate and climate is so inherently dangerous. So um, people wonder how could it be? that in the last 80 years, climate-related deaths have gone down by 80 percent and last year, supposedly the worst year ever for climate, you know, it's so dangerous, so many wildfires, whatever they say, had under 30,000 climate-related deaths worldwide, even that includes the non-industrialized world. And In the 30s, you had years where it's over 3 million, you know, 3 million compared to 30,000 and where you had one-third of t- – less than one-third of our population. You know, so it's more like 10 million compared – how how can that possibly happen and the, the answer is the perfect planet premise is just so wrong again climate is naturally variable volatile and vicious and the task with climate is not to try to not impact it it's tr- to try to fight it to try, try to and survive it to, to yeah. try to master it yeah that's why one of the chapters is called climate uh, mastery and as we get better technology, we can just continue to master it more and more. So the fossil fuel industry is 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 part of, not the only part of, but I think a, a truly heroic and untold story of climate mastery, which I'm, I'm tempted to write a book on, just the history of you know man's dependence on climate and and being at the mercy of climate and how that's improved. And in fact, Indigo Goklani of Cato has written some some really good stuff. Uh, on that, so I just say that with all these things, the main point to drive home is we want the method of focusing on human well-being and focusing on the big picture, and that means a lot of precision on both sides. So I, I don't like saying like, oh, I'll grant you global warming or even c- catastrophism. I want to know exactly what you're saying. Now, if you mean a hundred foot sea level rise in a year,
1: that that, that'd that be a problem?
2: Is that's like a World War three and four and five combined? Uh, but Though that's not even predicted by the climate prediction models that can't predict climate that we're supposed to bow to,
0: this climate mastery. I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us some examples of what that looks like in practice. Like, what are the things between the 1930s and now that we have been able to do that have caused this these deaths to drop so dramatically?
2: Oh yeah, there's so there's so many good ones. I mean, my my favorite one is um, I just think of thunderstorms, like just a a normal thunderstorm. And you can have the exact same – and in part because there's a scene in Atlas Shrugged, which is one of my favorite books uh, about this. And, and uh, as I was writing the book, I, I reread the scene and uh, many listeners are probably familiar with Atlas Shrugged. If you're not, I definitely take a look at it. Um, but you know, two of the heroes of the book are talking and they're having this very romantic evening, uh, you know, at least what's supposed to be a romantic evening at this guy Hank Reardon's house. And um, it's just this fierce storm outside, and and one of the characters in Francisco said, it's says it's you know it's a really bad night to be an animal tonight. It's a really good night to be a human, be- and this is the idea that outside the weather, nature is attacking every living being. It's you know it's the winds are fierce, and yet we're in here with beautiful gowns and enjoying fine china and all this kind of thing, and it's the kind of evening where you can imagine. Uh, you know, a man proposing to uh, to his girlfriend, and they'll remember this romantic thunderstorm. And then you you go back three hundred years before we have any kind of mastery, and this could kill a whole family, right? So it could be like the worst moment of your life or the best moment of your life, depending on your degree of mastery. You can take the same thing with agriculture. Um, Indra Kalani again has some great stuff on this, where you know in the past we talk about drought. Drought is really, you know, drought is really not having as much water as you want. And that's a problem that technology is gradually uh, eliminating. Because in the past, just nature doesn't give you that the reason why, you know, they talk so much about this is a bumper crop, this is a bad crop. Nature doesn't give you what you need all the time or even most of the time. So if you have one, two bad years, you can start eating your stock seed. It can, everything can go bad. Um, And now we just, we can irrigate right we can we can purify water hopefully we'll be able to desalinate water we we can do so much and the, the the principle is we need to not be saving the planet from human beings we need to improve it for human beings because it's not a perfect planet it's a perfectible planet but it is not a perfect planet
1: and that's yeah everything irrigation if you dig the <clears throat> ditch if you if you're irrigating let's just say straight with canals uh, you dig the ditch with a uh, uh some sort of industrial machine, some sort of construction machine that runs on fossil fuels, as opposed to digging it with your shovels. All, yeah. Every, yeah, everything is moving people around, getting them out of the way with with cars, right? So, a uh, earthquake or maybe a tsunami alert happens, and you get them out of the yeah. way. Yeah, uh, so many different ways to avoid the kind of damage or the you know, deaths you're talking about. And just
2: take as since we're here talking about ideas, I think it's worth pointing out that one of the greatest benefits. Uh, of having cheap, plentiful, reliable energy on a large scale is that you can have more and more people devoted to thinking and discovery of new knowledge. So um, things like being able to better predict the weather are crucial. Now, unfortunately, that can be distorted to the point where we have these very bad climate predictions telling us that we should get rid of the energy source that allowed us to predict the weather in the first place. Uh, But nevertheless, you know, from any any field that has advanced intellectually – uh, that is a product of the fossil fuel industry, and they should be, you know, given their measure of, of credit for it.
1: But isn't it true that, you know, despite all this discussion of these models and everything, isn't it true you hear it all the time that ninety-seven percent of scientists believe in global catastrophic man-made global warming problems?
2: Yeah. So there are a couple, of, and this. Uh anyways interested check out again the Cato talk um, that'll I'm sure be at cato.org cuz we we discussed 97%, you know maybe for 15 minutes or I used it as a as a case study in the ways in which we're taught to think illogically about fossil fuels. <coughs> and kind of the first question if you hear 97% agree with anything, first question is what exactly they what do they agree to? I, I really need to know that uh, clearly. And then how do I know they agree? And then why do they agree? I need explanations of all of those things, and usually with ninety seven percent none of those three things are,
1: are forthcoming I think there 's probably flat earthers maybe who are more than three percent of the population, so you maybe you couldn 't even find ninety seven percent of people who think that the earth is round
2: yeah, so so, so you sort of dig into this and it 's really fascinating because the original claim which comes from a couple of, of journal articles, is ninety seven percent believe that the warming over the last one hundred and fifty years of 0.8 degrees Celsius or one point three degrees Fahrenheit is mostly caused by human activity so over 50%
1: mostly being over 50% yeah. caused
2: yeah yeah so okay so you're talking like 0. 0.4 degrees you know 0. 0.65 degrees fahrenheit so what's interesting, though, is that that is used. It's used not to simply make that claim about temperature agnostically, because it is it, that that claim by itself has no moral significance. You don't know if it's even good to be warmer or not, and you certainly don't know if that magnitude is alarming. Although the fact that you cannot even physically discern it yourself without complex instruments sort of indicates it. You know, in particular, since you have the the trend tapering off recently, not accelerating. What's interesting is that is never used just as a sort of clinical observation to add as one piece of the puzzle. It is used for politicians to say 97 percent of scientists agree with climate catastrophe and really it's used to say 97 percent of scientists agree with my particular policies. So a good object lesson which I I discuss in chapter four of the book and which you can also look up online is John Kerry's speech to Indonesia where he kind of famously said, the science is leaping out at us like a 3D movie and make no mistake, this is absolutely certain. And then he starts out talking about how most of it most of the warming, he doesn't say how much, but you know most of it uh, – he doesn't say how much total warming there is. Most of it comes from uh, man-made causes and then by the end of the same paragraph, he's gone from 97 percent say the warming is mostly caused by man to 97 percent agree that it's an incredibly massive danger. So my background is in philosophy. This is a straight fallacy called equivocation, using the same word in this case 97 percent or same two words to mean two different things to manipulate uh, somebody. So – um, it is a really, really uh, revealing and bad example of the, the horrific state of logic in these discussions. So, what we actually need is for experts to tell us precisely what they know and what they don't know, and then explain their reasoning for both. And if that were, the, and then contribute that to the broader discussion, so climate scientists can tell us objectively: look, what do, you, what do we know? What's speculation? What's maybe probabilistic? But then economists can contribute, right? And uh, and physicists can contribute, and biologists can contribute about biological issues. And this is kind of what the UN claims to be doing, but it, it does not differentiate, to say the least. It does not differentiate between fact and and speculation. And so what you have is these scientific organizations being inc- using these incredible equivocations. In, in the case of organizations like the American Physical Society, which represents physicists, for God's sake, you know they're they're making political prescriptions. But how could you make a political prescription about fossil fuels if you don't know about it, the relative value of its energy? What the hell does a physicist know about energy economics? So he could, for all he knows, he could be sentencing four billion people to death through energy catastrophe because he thinks it's a problem that it's a little bit. Uh, So it's it's the 97 percent of – and then on top of that, the 97 percent, as I I talk about again in chapter four, isn't even true and the studies that do that are – say that they're based on more than 50 percent, but they include studies that say any percent. So that's another equivocation. I mean that's saying most, but most can mean over 50 percent or over 0 percent. So the whole – One point I want to make is the whole state of climate communication is a complete illogical racket and you do not need to be a climate scientist to know that it is incredibly morally corrupt. And that it needs to be completely redone, and, and many of these people need to be jettisoned from the cultural discussion.
1: Well, it seems like everyone is either being called a denier or an affirmer. So the ninety-seven percent is yeah, exactly knows. exactly. You're either affirming ninety-seven percent, or you're denying, and, and there's no nuance between the two. Well,
2: the only thing that's being denied is energy, as in they want to deny billions of people of energy. That's a proper use of the term. You don't use deny for. For issues that are uh, being debated, like your your moral case for fossil fuels denier, like okay, that's a little bit <laughs> a little bit uh, biasing the discussion there. I'd say.
0: So, if you were given the opportunity to be, say, in charge of U.S. energy policy, or had the ability to change the narrative, the way we talk about these things, how how should we be approaching questions of how we get our energy today, how we would get our energy in the future?
2: Well, I mean I think I have had the opportunity. I mean, you know, Penguin gave me the opportunity to write the book and I, and I you know, I did did my best to to frame everything and I Pat Michaels and I were talking about this today. I think that the idea of he who frames wins. I mean, you want to frame things. The side that frames the issues will win and I think ultimately if both sides are trying their best to frame it, the side with the most logic can frame it uh, the best. So I'd say the moral case is a way of framing it that's laser focused on human well being not minimizing human impact it's laser focused on the big picture it's laser focused on precision and it's laser focused on using experts not as authorities but as advisors who and advisors and explainers and so i'm you know, i'm really happy with with the opportunity and I'm happy to get the opportunity to be on podcasts like this and and you know I don't know that I don't think of myself as, oh, I want to run the Department of Energy. I'm, I'm interested in, in changing the way people think about energy. So just the opportunity to be here and talk to you guys is – that's honestly what excites me and you know I hope that people uh, check out the book and you can check out chapter one for free at, at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com and that's the secret history of fossil fuels. So you can see if uh, – do I like this framework? But I, I hope from this interview, people at least get – there's something really off with the way we talk about these issues, and we could probably be using uh, a, a better a better method. And I think if we do use a better method, we'll, we'll have a much higher estimate of fossil fuels. But in any case, if we use a better method, we'll come to a lot better answers than
1: we are right now. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, you can find us on Twitter at FreethoughtsPod. That's FreeThoughtsPod. P-O-D. Free Thoughts is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. To learn more, you can find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.